welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Thank you again for standing here. We stand in the honor of the reading of the scripture, which is God's holy word. And uh, as we prepare to hear from it today, I'll be reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, which is uh, the portion of scripture we come to. We're going verse by verse through this epistle to the Colossians. And so here along with me, once again, the word of God. Paul wrote to these believers, therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's holy word. It has a truth for us today. May his Holy Spirit reveal it in clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you can be seated. Well, an unusual passage of scripture, isn't it? It's talking about terms we don't usually use, talking about festivals and Sabbaths. It's talking about regulations and uh, dietary laws and all kinds of things and mystical things like visions and dreams. And, and yet I promise that it'll make sense as we open it up and go over it together because this is God's holy word, isn't it? You know, uh, Paul wrote this because he was hearing some sad stories about some of the the believers in the church at Colossae to whom he'd written this epistle. And he was hearing some sad stories about how some of them were being drawn away from the simplicity of faith in Christ and what he'd done on the cross for them. The same simple story that you saw people baptized over just a few moments ago. Just how sweet that was and how joyous that was, wasn't it? Paul remembered those people. He perhaps had been present at their baptism, or he had at least been told about it by their pastor. And and now he was hearing stories that these same dear people had been drawn away from simply trusting Christ back into false religions that had a lot of regulations and requirements, and they were being put under religion instead of trusting in that beautiful relationship they'd started with Jesus. And others had been deceived into pursuing all kinds of 
false supernatural experiences, visions and dreams and revelations in addition to what God's word taught them. And they were being drawn away from trusting Christ. And Paul was hearing some sad stories. And because he heard those sad stories, he wrote this epistle, particularly the words we've read in chapter two, the entire chapter really, in which he begins to argue back against that deception. Because no pastor, once he hears a sad story, wants it to end sadly. He wants to rescue people. And he wants to warn them and teach them back to Jesus. And so that's what Pastor Paul was doing. And I can relate to him. Paul had heard some sad stories. And I, over my many years as a pastor, I've been part of some sad stories too. And so today I'm going to tell you some sad stories from my experience to illustrate this passage, some of my own encounters with deception, because I want you to be led into the simplicity of devotion to Jesus. So maybe an unusual message in that regard. Oh, I've heard my sad stories over many years. I've watched some of them transpire over years. Not long ago, I was uh, contacted by a young man. Well, he's not young anymore, but uh, when I was training college students down in Southern California many years ago. And uh, he was a young man that I, I discipled, had him in a, a young, uh, young men's discipleship group for a couple of years and taught him the scriptures, memorized scripture, helped him grow up in the faith. I think I baptized him. I cannot quite remember. He showed a lot of zeal, a lot of energy for Christ. But I hadn't heard from him for many years, but because of how our world is now connected, he got back in touch with me, and he wanted to tell me that he had found the true faith, and that was Orthodox Judaism, and that he had left the faith that I had discipled him in, and he had become a member of an Orthodox Jewish community. He was so serious about it that he was full on with the dark dress and the Orthodox hat. He'd grown his hair out with the lockets and and he was intensely pursuing keeping all the laws of the Old Testament and following all the dietary laws that the Orthodox community talks about, keeping kosher and more. And he was memorizing the Old Testament and putting himself under the Torah and believed that that was the way to earn acceptance with God. And he told me that he had decided that the Jesus that he and I had trusted was a false messiah. It was heartbreaking. And I wrote back to him and sought to appeal to him and to confront the deception in his life. And it hardened him further. And it was a sad tale. So he had lost the, the trust, the pure, simple trust you saw earlier today by an addiction back into religion and earning his way into heaven. There was also another individual that I, I had known for a number of years and uh, I had affection for him. He was a believer, but he never ever could settle down in any one church, in any one place for very long, because he was addicted to seeking after experiences with the Holy Spirit. And he truly believed that no one yet had fully experienced the Spirit like he wanted to and like he thought he was. And so he would stay in a church long enough to see that they didn't quite have it criticize them for not quite having it, and then move on somewhere else. And I watched him year after year. He couldn't even stay in a Bible study very long or a small group because he would insist in disrupting the group and saying, before you go on with more Bible teaching, you need to have more of him. 
He would say often, I don't care what doctrine teaches. You got to feel him, man. And he became more and more addicted to experience and more and more disruptive in places of worship to where he wasn't wanted any longer. It was a sad tale to watch. Well, now he's in heaven. And now, well, he's having all the experience he ever thought was important, but more importantly, he's learning all the truth he should have learned and walked in. He's lost a lot of reward because he was pursuing worthless things. So I looked at those two lives as I read about Paul and knowing that Paul had heard sad stories too. And, 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 and we have the same experience, he and I. We, we've heard sad stories about sincere believers who were pulled away from the simplicity of faith in that cross and in what Christ has done into one of two things, into religion, like my, my first friend. Instead of a relationship with Christ, they were pulled, he was pulled in the do's and don'ts of a religion, or my second friend who was pulled into experience or what you could call mysticism. Pulled away, and they must have been pulled away by somebody in their life who was teaching falsely, right? Some false teacher got a hold of their, their vulnerable minds, and because my friends didn't draw a line when they should have, they were pulled away from their faith. That's a very important understanding. They had a choice as that falsehood was coming into their world to draw a line over what they knew the Bible taught and over what, who they knew Jesus was. And if they had drawn that line, I believe they wouldn't have been pulled over. But they didn't draw the line and they were. Now, 2,000 years ago, approximately, when Colossians was written, the same two problems were happening to Christians just like my friends. The same two problems, people being pulled away by religion and works or attracted by mysticism, and both were abandoning Christ in the church at Colossae. Now, Paul writes this, particularly these verses, to challenge that, and he teaches them how to draw a line and not be pulled over into deception. And that's what I'm going to do today as I teach you his words. Now, there are two emphases in the passage. One, Paul says, is let your line be drawn. He says, let no one pass judgment on you, the beginning of verse 16. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. That's New Testament language for draw a line when somebody tries to teach you falsehood. So he says, let your line be drawn, believer. Don't be afraid to say what you believe and challenge wrong teaching. Don't be pulled over. You draw a line. And secondly, let your heart be drawn at the same time into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to have both. So let's take a look at them in the time that we have. So first of all, Paul says, let your line be drawn. You see, he he was teaching against the threat of these false teachers in Colossae, telling these believers, knowing Jesus is fine, but you need more. And they were drawing people either under the law, verse 16, they were telling them, oh, you've got to eat certain things, drink certain things, not eat certain others. You've got to go to certain festivals, verse 16, and be involved in keeping the Sabbath, the Jewish Old Testament law version the day of rest on the, on the Saturday, the Sabbath, and all the rules that were associated with it, they were drawing them either un, onto law or some of the other false teachers were drawing them into experience. That's verse 18. That no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And look at this, worship of angels going on in detail about visions. They were putting them under a guilt trip that they hadn't quite tasted real, spir real spirituality. 
So both of those things were happening. And Paul says, don't let anybody handle you that way. Don't let anybody disqualify you or pass judgment on you. That's New Testament language for draw a line. Know who you know and know what you believe. And of course, the question is, yeah, but how do I do that? That's why he wrote to them and he gives them four steps in my opinion. Here they are. First of all, he says, take charge of your biblical mind. Take charge of your biblical mind. Make no mistake, he's telling them, you have to know as a believer where to draw the line over what you believe and who you know. Don't let anybody pass judgment. Don't let anybody disqualify you. Why? Well, he begins this whole statement or section with the word therefore, and you all know what we do with therefore. We look and see why it's therefore. And we know that it's coming out of the previous verse, isn't it? It's a wonderful passage we went over last week, I believe, where he talked about the fact that Jesus has done everything for us and we have everything in him. Back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he said, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you've been filled in him who's the head of all rule and authority. He basically told them, you have everything in Jesus. You don't need anything else that anybody wants to thrill you with. No, No added bells and whistles to what you already have. But also, this Jesus has done everything to take you to heaven. That's last week, verses 14 and 15. He canceled, God did, the record of debt, your sins, that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. All the perfection God ever demanded of you, he found in his son, and his son, as a perfect man and God, went to that cross, and he became a curse for all of your sin, but it was all paid for, right? Please say that a little more loudly. Draw your line. Thank you very much. Crying out loud. I'm going to have to go preach that sermon again. All right, then. So take charge of what you believe. And then he says, let no one manhandle what you believe. And so here's the idea. The first defense against deception is being confident in what you know. That's not that clear, but he's implying it here. Listen, therefore, because I've already told you, you have everything in Jesus and he's done everything for you. You don't need any of the things that these people are peddling. Know what you know. You say, how do I do that? Well, you got to know it. You can't just right on somebody else's faith. You can't just come and hear me talk about it for 45 minutes once a week and say you're good. No, you've got to own truth. You've got to know the truth because no false teacher is going to come and say, pastor, I'd like to deceive so-and-so in your church. Wanted to kind of get your heads up on that. No, they're going to come right into your life and try and deceive you one-on-one. If you don't know truth of your own, you're deceivable. Become like the people in 1 John 2, 14. John wrote, and he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men in the faith, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. How do we become people that know how to take charge of our biblical mind? We know our biblical truth. That's on you. Second, how do you draw your line? Secondly, you do it by refusing the false attraction of religion. And that's verses 16 and 17. He says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you, making you believe you're inferior because you're not keeping their rules about food and drink or festivals or the Sabbath. 
These are legalistic rules. Another word for religion is legalism, keeping of the law, pleasing God because you believe he wants you to keep a a whole list of commandments in order for you to be truly uh, accepted by him. The the false teachers were saying what Christ gave for you was a good start, but you must do more. It's always Christ and with a false teacher, isn't it? So, They were pushing a lot of things on, and basically you could put two words around it. They were pushing diet and days. They were pushing the fact that you need to keep all these dietary laws from the the Old Testament. There's certain things you ought to eat and drink, certain things you shouldn't. There's festivals you want to keep every year and, and be part of. There's all kinds of, there were four festivals that Jews had to go to, at least one of those four every year, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Lights. That's Old Testament Judaism. These are Gentile Christians, but they were trying to force all that old Jewish law back on these poor people. They were talking about different uh, festivals and rites that you're supposed to follow and and then laws and rules and rituals of the Sabbath day. You look at it at the end. Uh, A Sabbath, talking about all of that keeping of the Sabbath, which was not necessary any longer because the Bible says Jesus canceled the bondage of the law. That's what he nailed to his cross in verse 14. He kept the law perfectly and paid for how you didn't. And now we live under the law of God's love and grace through Jesus Christ, don't we? That's what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand fast, draw your line, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So they were trying to put them under a, a regime of diet and days and special feasts and everything else. And, and the Bible says all of that was taken at the cross. You don't have to live under that anymore. Doesn't mean you don't live to please God It means you do it out of a desire to be grateful to him and as the word of God and the spirit of God reveal how you're to walk. But you're not in bondage to these things anymore. He says they're a shadow of things to come, verse 17. They were all placed in the Old Testament experience of Israel and in the Old Testament record as shadows, as as images of something greater approaching and, you know, it's interesting when, when somebody walks up to you and you see the edge of their shadow out of your line of sight, you're intrigued with the shadow and your eyes are caught with the shadow and you think that's an intriguing shadow. I wonder who's coming, don't you? There's no shadow without a shadow maker, right? And as soon as that person walks up to you, you your eyes go from the foot of their shadow into the, the look in their eyes. You, you, you look at an intriguing shadow and then you're caught up with a real person, Right? He's saying that these things, like the Passover, for example, in, in the Old Testament time, that time was, that was given as a way in which we could understand through the Passover lamb that a lamb was coming who would be sacrificed to the point of shedding blood and dying innocently, and his, his sacrifice would not just cover our sin, but take it away. The Passover of the Old Testament revealed what the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover, Paul said, has been sacrificed. So Christ is the real substance of what those things were just shadows of. They told you he was on the way, but when he's shown up, you're occupied with him. Don't get wrapped up in the old shadows, he says. The Sabbath day, keeping that for Jews, was designed to show them that God wanted them to have a day of rest, and he enforced it because there was coming someone named Jesus, the Messiah, who through his death and resurrection would give them an eternal experience of rest. Hebrews chapter 4, the greatness is in Christ. So 
it's just fascinating to me that people are still attracted, however, back to false religion and to rituals, even though they've tasted freedom in Christ. Sometimes very intelligent believers. I've watched over the last few years some leading theologians that I followed and read for years move away from the faith that I've cherished, and I thought they did, into Roman Catholicism, for example, or Greek Orthodox religion as another example. Now, I'm speaking about them pointedly because they teach a broken gospel, my friend. Perhaps you're taking offense now, but after you take offense, listen to what may be true. They teach a broken gospel. They teach a broken atonement. They teach that what Jesus did on the cross was not fully sufficient to pay for your sin and to bring you into heaven. There is a whole list of works that you must do in the, in the, in the Catholicism impression or the Orthodox impression that you add to the work of Christ. That's a broken atonement. It's a broken understanding of the cross, and it leads you into hopelessness and performance Each of these faiths, by the way, insists on certain sacred days you must keep, don't they? Certain uh, rituals that you must undergo and continue to undergo, don't they? And even certain foods you should avoid at certain times, don't they? Take a look at verses 16 and 17, and you tell me if there's not a very clear shadow of these things. It's always been the same deception. And yet these men that I respected went into these, well, they, they, they dug these broken wells all over again. Why? Because we're so attracted into whatever we can do to guarantee our relationship with God. It's a human addiction. There must be something I can do or should do to make sure my relationship with God is certain. And that's where we miss it. Because it is by faith that we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved not by works, lest no man should boast, as these false teachers were boasting, but grace by faith. And I look at that and I wonder, are we going to see more of that? The Bible seems to indicate that in the, in the end of days, there will be a greater falling away from the faith. And I think part of it may be into the direction of Christian-sounding legalistic systems. Why do people do that? Here's a guess about our souls. I think as we get into increasingly difficult and chaotic times, and things have definitely upshifted, haven't they? People long for order. And that's where the deceiver comes in. And he'll take your desire for order and lead you from walking away from the difficulty and the unknowns of faith. And he'll lure you into something you can organize and count on. Don't let him do it. Don't let your desire for order in an increasingly chaotic world lead you from a relationship by faith into a ritual. Even if it makes you feel better in the moment, you got to draw your line. So how do you draw the line? First, take charge of your own biblical mind. Don't let anybody take advantage of you. Know what you know. Secondly, refuse the false attraction of religion. Here's the third. Keep with me. By also rejecting the enticing delusion of experience, now we go into verse 18. Don't let anybody disqualify you, tell you you're not a real Christian. 
tell you you really aren't mature, tell you you don't all know everything you need to know, tell you you haven't really gotten it yet. Don't let anybody disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Now we get to the second thing that deceived my second friend, and that's experience or mysticism. You got to reject the enticing delusion of added experience. Now, they were bringing this to these Colossian Christians in two ways. They were saying, you know, if you really want to encounter God, instead of just trusting what you've heard about Jesus, you need to encounter angels. You need to learn from us the secrets of encountering a higher spiritual level and actually encountering and worshiping angels who will give you new revelation, who will take you into higher levels of consciousness, who will take you into more of discovering it. Oh boy, I tell you, then as now, that's a problem. I'll tell you what, you get involved with any pseudo-Christian church or any online teacher or anybody that wants to get you involved in some encounter where they are obsessed with angels, where they're looking for added words of knowledge from the angelic realm, where they're naming and claiming things from guardian angels or whatever it is, run like mad. It's bad news in one of two ways. Either it's all made up, in which case you're just flat being lied to. Or they've actually had some real encounters. That's worse. Do angels exist? Yes or no? Yes, they do. Are good angels existing? Yes, they do. But also, are there wicked angels? The Bible calls them demons. Oh, very real. They can manifest themselves to those kinds of minds. The scripture tells us that Satan himself, Paul said, masquerades as an angel of light. Paul said, then don't be surprised if his human servants, false teachers, also come across as angels of light, as people that would involved with what looks to be true and feels so Christian, but in the end on the other side is a demon, because Paul also said, there are doctrines of demons that come right out of the pit of hell. So be wise. Don't get involved in these things. There are others that were saying, listen, You need to understand what we've discovered through the visions that God gives us, the dreams, what you've heard from Paul and and these others that teach the word of God is good, but we have the the download. We have the, the, the freshest teaching from the highest realm. Let us reveal to you our visions and let us also question you as to why you don't have your own. There was all this going on. It's spiritual intimidation in certain ways. People bragging about special encounters with the supernatural, dreams and visions with new revelation from God, new predictions about the future. And they were disqualifying these believers, saying, unless you have this encounter, you do not fully know God. Now notice that they were involved in these things, which we would call mysticism. This is even more dangerous than legalism in a way because it's so subjective that nobody can prove or disprove it. And that's a problem in our society because our society today believes if you experience it, it's true. doesn't matter if it's contradicted by clear teaching. Oh, an experience has power to us, just like these Greeks But he's saying, don't put your experience 
into this and don't seek experiences. But these people were saying, oh, if you haven't tasted what we have experienced yet, you really don't know him. You know how devastating that can be to a new believer? If you're a person that's chasing all these experiences and believe you have these, these touches or tastes from God, you might believe in that experience, but when you force that on another person and say that they truly don't know the Lord until they get it, you are destroying a person's confidence. That happened to me when I was only a few weeks old as a Christian. The person that led me to Christ got involved in a very experience-driven church, and he experienced it, whatever you want to understand that to be, and, and he urged me to stay after a service for a special after service in which they were helping all kinds of people get it. And I stayed for that service. I knew, I knew the Lord Jesus. I loved, loved the Lord Jesus. I was already growing in the Lord Jesus. I thought the cross had taken everything for me and that I knew him through his word. But by the end of that service, after they prayed over me and stood over me and walked around me and waited on me to get it, and I never got close to getting it, they just quietly shrugged their shoulders and said, maybe next time. They went home, but I went out into the darkness of that parking lot devastated because I had come to believe through my experience that maybe I didn't know God. Maybe all that I trusted in, in Christ, maybe I didn't know him because I didn't have it. It took many months of being under a Bible teaching church that taught the openness of the scripture and the reliability of what the Bible says by faith before I gained my confidence back. Don't let anybody disqualify you like they did me. Notice they also take their stand. And they go on in detail. This is an exploding problem today, my beloved friend. Whether you're a full-on believer and you know the Word of God, or whether you're here today and you don't yet know Christ, be aware of the fact that there are all kinds of people claiming the name of Christ, peddling all kinds of new revelations and dreams that are totally false. But it's exploding in our era Multitudes, and I mean multitudes of believers, have been swept away from contentment in the Word of God by modern-day mystics. They're filling our churches. They're filling our Bible studies. They're on television. They're on radio. And the Internet has given them a cathedral of their very own. Just do a search. I tapped into a search engine this week, just the simple phrase, prophetic dreams and visions. My screen was filled with countless people and countless sites that were happy to tell me about their prophetic dreams and visions. Do you remember in the 90s when astrology was a huge thing? Back then we had an ancient document called the Yellow Pages, and you could open this. Yeah. They found one recently where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. Yeah, it's right there. But you could open up the astrology section. It was like that thick. Remember that? Cleo and all the 800, 900 numbers you could call. Remember that craziness? This outruns it by a thousand yards. In my search, I found that uh, you can find anybody who has had a prophetic dream on anything from your personal prosperity to American politics to coming judgment on our country to coming revival in our country, all the way through every prediction about the end of days that God never told us, but now these people know 
There are dream and vision interpretation services. Did you know this? If you have a dream or think you've had a vision, you can call an 877 number 24-7. I kid you not. And you can recite into the voicemail the details of your dream and vision. Or you can type the details of your dream and vision into a fillable form on their website. And they promise to get back to you with the correct interpretation of what you've seen in one business day. I mean, just think about it. The madness, but also the banal foolishness of all of this. There's a place called the Dream Room where you can do just what I told you to do. There's also a site that I saw called Prophetic Dreams University. It has online courses to teach you how to become a prophet and how to regularly receive visions. It struck me, why, why does it have to be an online course? Why couldn't they just beam that into my new mind? There's <laughs> also a place you can go every day. It's called the Daily Dream because they have a whole collection of Christians that get dreams daily and they post them and they, they do videos and you can hear about the Daily Dream. Do you see the absurdity of it? But you can also see that in a society that... that that is looking for experience, these people who make great claims for having heard the voice of God deceive people. Typically, by the way, they have no use for doctrine. They say, doctrine is not important. Just give me more of Jesus. Give me more and I will give you more of what I've experienced. I've had people say to me, don't talk to me about doctrine. I trust my experience over what you say. Many times as a pastor. That's where we're headed as a Christian society. Now, that's a pathway to bondage. Why? Because how much new experience is enough? How much new revelation is enough? How much new secret teaching is enough? Answer, just a little bit more. And that's the bondage these people were being led into. And that's the bondage people in our society, in our Christian world, are being led into. Maybe even yourself. I understand why, because we're in a world where it's, it's more frightening all the time, and it's more emotionally uncertain all the time, isn't it? Big upshift. Don't let your emotional uncertainty tempt you to look for mystical assurance. Here he says, it's all without reason. What they're talking about has no fundamental connection with truth or reality. They're puffed up about something that means nothing. And it ultimately comes out of their sensuous mind. The word sensuous there doesn't relate to sex. It relates to any desire to have an experience. Isn't that where our world is today? Don't you get hooked into it, my dear friend. I've got to hurry now. Fourthly, he says, not only do you take charge of your biblical mind and refuse the attractiveness of false religion and, and reject the enticing delusion of experience, but lastly, you do it by realizing that they are both religion and experience, hopelessly empty. That's verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He's saying, listen, you died to this because Christ died to it. And when he died, you died. There's no need for you to get involved in all of this. He says, just 
Just abandon it all. These are human precepts and teachings, verse 21. And they're all bankrupt. They have indeed, verse 23, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Look at the last phrase. These things, though they sound intriguing, though they look amazing, though they stir you emotionally, maybe intrigue you mentally and intellectually, they have no value in what God is really after. What does he want in your life? He wants you to become like his son, doesn't he? And you do that by saying no to your old, old desires and your old drives of sin, and you become more obedient to Jesus. He says none of this will help you in what God is really after. Oh, they have the appearance of wisdom, he says in these passages. They have the appearance of wisdom, verse 23. They are intriguing. They are alluring. They're new. And they do promote religion. If you get involved in legalism, like my dear friend I told you about at the beginning, it must be very satisfying to him to dress a certain way and know that he's eating exactly the right foods today to, to, to please the Hebrew God. Oh, he gets a lot of fulfillment out of that, I'm sure. But it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And the flesh there, as I taught you a couple weeks ago, is a word Paul used to talk about the drive to sin in your life. And none of these things, religion or experience, will help you conquer that. I'll put it this way. It's a lot easier to skip meat for a week than it is to battle private sin every day. There's only the indwelling Christ through the power of his authoritative word that you live in by faith that can do that. Well, my time is gone. Here's the last. You're thinking, okay, so you've told me about the landmines of religion and experience and what the tripwires are, but how do I safely get through the minefield? <laughs> well, I've given you a lot of instruction already about how to draw the line, right? But there's something else, and that's the last major dimension, and that is don't only learn how to draw the line, but also, secondly, and lastly, let your heart be drawn to Christ. Go back to the heart of the passage. He says, the whole problem with these people, these false teachers, is verse 19, it says, they're not holding fast to the head. That's capitalized. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ, the living Lord, the Lord of his church, the one that dwells in your heart. From whom the whole body, the body of Christ, all believers, the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, growing with a growth that is from God. So the, the, the second part of the answer, draw your lines, but let your heart continually be drawn to Christ in real relationship, real walk, real trust, a real relationship of faith. If you have a living, growing relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be interested in these trinkets. A good friend of mine has often said, in the Christian life, the key to no is a bigger Yes. Knowing what you treasure will not make you attracted to things that are worthless. Treasure Jesus. Walk with him. Let your heart be drawn to him. Hold fast to him. And if you do, as a member of his body, it says, are you a member of his body? Yes, you are. So this promise here in verse 19 is for you. If you're a member of the body, you'll be nourished. What does that mean? God will fill your soul with the two things you need most as a human being. Number one, a sense of security. Why do people go back into legalism and religion? They're insecure. 
They can't quite trust that Christ paid it all, so they just have this sense that I'm so guilty, I need to continue to do something. They're not secure. Christ will fill you with security. He'll nourish you with that certainty as you walk with him, and you won't need law. And secondly, people need significance, don't they? They need to know that they mean something in this world and they mean something to God, and that's why people are drawn to mysticism, because it's an upload of momentary experience that gives them a sense that they're at a higher level, and it makes them feel important. Paul said they're doing this because they're puffed up without reason. That's where all these people come from. But if you let the Lord nourish you with your security in Christ through grace and your significance as a blood-bought believer through whom he wants to work in people's lives, you will not be attracted to false directions like these. And you'll grow, he says, with a growth that is from God. He'll fill you with his purpose and you'll be satisfied in him. Well, I warned you as I began that I was going to tell you some sad stories. But here's the good news. Listen, those stories I told you, they were the exception. Because the vast majority of born-again believers that I've walked with and pastored over 30 years do learn to draw the line and do learn to cherish the Lord. And their walk with him, though they might be tempted at times or maybe even misguided for seasons, their walk with the true Lord and their love for the true word brings them back. People like you. Why do you come back? Because you know how much you need the real Jesus. And you know that nothing compares with the majesty of the word that he gave us once for all. So I don't want you to be afraid today. I want you to be aware. I want you to be strengthened to defend your own biblical mind, know how to draw your own lines, and draw closer, ever closer 